never been surprised by anything. Um, and Lord, you still very much want to speak to us today from your word. And so, Lord, yeah, would you meet with us today, Lord? Would you give us hearts that are ready, thirsty, to meet with you? And it's the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. It's still good to see you, at least to see your eyes, at least. Um, it's a bit of a bummer preaching to masks, but that's okay. Um, thanks, Josh. Where's Josh? At the back. Thanks, Josh. Can we, can we thank Josh for this morning? And his hilarious shirt that wasn't a little bit distracting. I love how, like, revival fire. Um, thanks, thanks for setting the scene for us today. Um, thoroughly. <laughs> um, can I can I tease you from up the front? Yeah. Um, yeah, and no, I thank you for, for helping us see, especially some of those, um, those, those marks of true revival and some of the dangers, I think. The word revival, you just get so many different responses from a person um, depending on what they have in their minds, right? If someone has an association with the false revivals, you mention that word, you, get, you, you might get an eye roll. Uh, if you mention it to someone who knows the history of revivals, uh, you might get a very different response. And so um, it was very helpful, Josh, to, to start us off like that. Um, I'm going to do a Josh and start with a quote. This is the best, all right? This is, this is an introduction. On, 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 in your booklets, I, I gave three. I tried to keep it to only three recommended readings. Um, Ray Ortland's book, When God Comes to Church, is that what it's called? Um, on Revival. This is an introduction. Um, and it will be up there on the screen, I believe. Do I have it? Yes, cool. I don't know if you can read that. I, I was expecting a bigger screen, but and this is in the way, probably. Oh, thanks, Matt. And I might move that as well. All right. He starts by referencing Isaiah 64, verse 1, which is in the front page of your booklets there. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. This idea of, of God meeting with his people. That's what Ray says. Uh, Ray's, if I could pick one pastor to be my pastor, it would be Ray, for the record. Um, he's my pastor in my heart. Um, when God rends the heavens and comes down on his people, a divine power achieves m what human effort at its best fails to do. God's people thirsty for the ministry of the word, thirst for the ministry of the word and receive it with tender meltings of soul. I love that. Tender meltings of soul. The grip of enslaving sin is broken. Reconciliation between believers is sought and granted. Spiritual things rather than material things capture people's hearts. In times of revival, a defensive, timid church is transformed into a confident army. Believers joyfully suffer for their Lord. They treasure usefulness to God over career advancement. Communion with God is avidly enjoyed. Churches and Christian organizations reform their policies and procedures to be more biblical, to line up with the word of God. People who had always been indifferent to the gospel now inquire anxiously. A wave of divine grace washes, washes over the church and spills out onto the world. Don't we want that? This is what happens 
when God comes down. And this is how we should pray for the church today. We are grateful for God's reviving mercies in the past, for sure. We can hear the stories and go, that is awesome. How good is that, that God did that? We can be thankful for those things, but we cannot avoid, we cannot afford to be content with past blessings. Isn't it time to pray for God to rend the heavens and come down? Isaiah's prayer is calculated to give us the courage to pray boldly for a new revival sent from God in our day. So this is, this is the idea of this weekend. It was the idea of this weekend. It's not going to be spread over two weekends. Um, that we would pray. We'd meet, that we'd open up the word, that we'd hear the invitation of God to, to seek these things from him, um, to, to dare to imagine what God might do, and then to ask him for that, like he actually invites us to do in, in his word. And so that's what we're going to be doing today when we pray for this reality. Um, you hungry for that? I think you came to this weekend because you are. <laughs> You're hungry for that. Let me, let me pray again, uh, and we'll jump into our passage, Isaiah 6. Lord, um, I thank you for even the time we have got to spend today hearing about revival both in your word and through history, Lord. And I pray today that you would open up our, our, our eyes to our need for more of you. Lord, I think of, um, I think of John 15, Lord, where, where Jesus says to his disciples, he looks them in the eye and says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we, we've read that before, and yet we just don't believe that's true. We believe we can do tons of things without you. And yet, Lord, we today want to um, believe on Jesus' word that we can really do nothing without you. And yet, when we abide in the vine, we can bear much fruit. So, Lord, I pray over these group of young adults today from these three churches in Brisbane, Lord. um, Yeah, Lord, we pray for a new revival, a new work of your Holy Spirit in these three churches. Lord, would you use us? Would you use each and every one of these individuals today? First, by meeting with them powerfully, and then by flowing that love on to the church and into the world. Lord, give us a divine wave of your grace in our churches, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are going to be doing Isaiah 6 today, one of the best chapters in the Bible, I think. Um, So you can open up to that if you have it there, if you have a Bible there. Um, I'm now, I'm now, I'm now going to call this a Josh again and say another quote. <laughs> um, this is C.S. Lewis. This is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. I don't see this actually used much, and I'm surprised because it's one of my very favorites. Um, C.S. Lewis, he has, he, okay, he has this talent of being able to put into words things that are really hard to put into words. That's, the, that's what he's best at. He manages to say things. You're like, I've always thought that. I've never known how to like, express that. He does it. Um, so he, he, he describes this moment. That I, that I think you might have experienced when you realize that God might actually be there. Do you know what I'm talking about? You might be a church kid growing up in church the whole life and then there's a moment one day when you realize, oh snap, he's actually here. And you have that little freak out moment. This is what he says. He's talking about how people tend to prefer a kind of vague God to, a, to the actual living real God. He says this, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of, of Beauty and truth and goodness inside our own heads. Better still, a formless life force surging through us, a a vast power which we can tap 
best of all, so think like Avatar, right? Like God is everything, kind of like that. That kind of like God is there and He's powerful, and we can we can tap into that power. How good is that? Best of all, but God Himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband. That's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing that we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he found us. Do you see what he's getting at? There's a moment where we realize this whole Christian thing. God's actually there. And he's coming for us. Friends, have you been dabbling in religion? Playing at Christianity? Playing at faith? Or have you met the real God yet? Because he is coming for you. He is the hunter. He is the, the husband. He is coming. So the message today is called Coming Alive to the Real God. So we're going to start this weekend and finish this weekend, unfortunately. But I think it's still a good place to, um, to start. Um, coming alive to the real God. And there's, there's two reasons why we're going to start here um, on, on the revival weekend theme, why we'd start talking about, about this thing. Um, the first reason that we're talking about this is for the fact that we need to come alive to God once more. We need to come alive to God once more. What, this, what I'm trying to say here is, is, is that there is still places in us that are very much still dead to God. They're our territory, and he is not welcome there. We might even know that it's true. But inside of us, there are places that the gospel has yet not penetrated and transformed. There are, there are places in our hearts where we are unresponsive to his call. And I do want to point out here, I'm not, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about like an ongoing relationship with Jesus. So yeah, it all starts by the power of the Spirit with conversion for sure. And yet, um, for Christians who have been made alive by the Spirit of God, who have received the gift of grace, who are children of God, we continually, as an ongoing life, an ongoing spiritual dynamic, need to come alive to God again and again and again, and again. And I've got to say, guys, even in just my time preparing for this week and in praying for this week and thinking about revival, in my own heart, I have begun to, as I've been thinking about this, been seeing more and more of this in my life. I've been discovering places where I am actually quite dead to God. I'm not particularly responsive to him. I do sideline him. I, I, there's places in my life where my, where my theology and my experience don't match up, and that bothers me, and it should bother you too when that happens in your life. It's not because the truth isn't true, or what I believe isn't true. It's because somehow I'm unconsciously resisting the work of God in my heart. And I need to come alive to God once more. American pastor John Piper, he says it like this when he, he, he talks about revival. He, he's basically saying exactly what I'm saying. He says this, The idea of revival originates in the reality that on one hand, God is the decisive giver of all spiritual life. Amen. But on the other hand, humans, 
even those who are born again and part of the God's covenant family, from time to time, drift into a kind of lifelessness, lethargy, backsliding, indifference, weakness. Can I get an amen? Is that just this guy? Surely not, right? We, we, we relate to this. We're like, yeah, I've, I've, I've had moments in my life where I've experienced the goodness of God, and then I've had moments in my life where I've been like, what am I doing? I'm so dead to him. Indifference and weakness. What happens when you put those two things together? John Piper says, when you put those two things together, God is the giver of life, and man is end- as ever drifting towards lifelessness, what you get is the need for the hope of reviving, coming back to life, a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people, and that is what revival is. Fresh outpouring of the spirit of life, waking up those sleepy Christians so that the the world sees the beauty of the gospel in the church and the prodigal sons come home. So that's what we're talking about this weekend. That's what revival is about. We're talking about personal revival first. Um, Fresh life, new hope, fresh hope, fresh life, uh, newness in the place of deadness. God's empowering grace in our in our weakness and in our apathy. That's, that's what we're talking about. And that's what we need today. We don't just need more facts about God. If you know me, you know that I'm a, I'm a Bible guy. I love theology. I know Josh is as well and Matt as well, right? But we also know that what you really need isn't more information by this stage, I'm sure. If we've got any people who aren't Christians yet, you need, a, you need some information for sure, right? But um, for most of us, if we're, if we're Christians, we know that there comes a point where information is no longer the problem. There's a spiritual, a spiritual problem. The best theology in the world can't get us into the kingdom of heaven. No, we need, we need God himself to do a miracle in us. We need new life. So, I've labored that. First reason we need to come alive to the real God is because we need to come alive again to God. The second reason is because we need a renewed vision of the actual God, right? The real God, right? So, emphasis on the back half, right? Have I got it? Yeah, there we go. Coming alive, first part, second half, the real one, right? Emphasis on real. Um, A.W. Tozer, he's like a great American pastor of like two or three generations ago. Um, incredibly prophetic voice in his day. He said this, he said, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So when someone says the word God, whatever pops into your brain at that point is going to be the one thing that dictates your entire life going to drive all of your life without you even knowing it and the problem of course is that we so easily drift into a small manageable packaged uh, version of God that doesn't we don't find in the scriptures Uh, he fits nicely in the margins of our lives we can control him the problem with this God is that he can't revive anything because he doesn't exist (laughs) he is a figment of our imagination we need to discover the real God. A real problem is not our, our big kind of catastrophic sins in our life. Our real problem is our small imaginary God who can't save us from our sin. So revival is what happens when we all discover this real God together. 
And this happens not just in me or in, or in you, but in us. And this begins to change the dynamics of our, of our churches. It begins to influence our culture. It begins to change everything. It starts by us first repenting of our small picture of God and coming alive to, as, as C.S. Lewis put it, right, God himself, alive at the other end of the cord, pulling the string, the hunter, the king, the husband, approaching at infinite speed this true and real God. And we need to encounter him again, discover his love for us again, encounter the power of his grace again, rediscover this God who sits enthroned and who has limitless power, by the way. There's no problem in your life that God is worried about. Limitless power, infinite power, and he wants to work in your life. And so revival is what happens when we come alive to this God together. And so that's our prayer. Um, we're going to change things up a little bit today. So we'll see how we go for time at the end of the session. But we'll spend a bit of time in prayer for sure. Uh, if there's one thing we've got to do on this um, I think Keller said it well in one of his in his chats. He was like, "This is one of those one of those topics where we should probably talk for two minutes and pray for 50. Um, and I resonate with that. And so we want to not lose time for that. Anyway, we're going to get to Isaiah six first. Isaiah six. Um, says this. Do I have it? We do. In the year that King Uzziah died. That's Uzziah, not Isaiah. It's confusing. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. We'll finish up for there, and we'll get into it a bit further down the track. But Isaiah 6 is the day that Isaiah went to church, went to the temple to worship, just like you and me did last week. And the last person he expected to see there was there, God himself. God himself, Isaiah 6, is the day that God came to church. And so we're, we're jumping into chapter 6 of a book. It's always a bit of a dangerous thing to do. What happened in the first five chapters? I'm glad you asked, because that's what I'm going to get into next. We're going to do a little bit of background work, so we understand why the timing of this matters. Um, so what, what's happened in the first five chapters, we're going to skim really quickly. Um, the first five chapters of Isaiah are dismal. So if you're ever wanting to feel depressed, um, first five chapters of Isaiah is a good place to go. Um, they describe at length, at length, the great faithlessness of God's people and the coming judgment of God upon them. Isaiah 1 verse 4, I'll, just, I'll skip through a couple of verses just to highlight it. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Isaiah 2 verse 5, he, the, the, the prophet Isaiah pleads with the people. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And still they refuse him. Chapter 5 finishes with this summary 
of the spiritual state of the people. Chapter 5, verse 30. I can't remember if I had it. No, I don't. Isaiah finishes with this. He says, If one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Darkness, distress, no light. And God is rousing Judah's enemies to come and bring judgment upon them for their faithlessness. Darkness and distress, and on the horizon, the hordes of the east are coming. And it is in this moment where the the drums of war have well and truly started, and there is great wickedness and idolatry in the land, that we get verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So this vision comes to Isaiah, the vision of this Lord comes to Isaiah when the king dies, King Uzziah. We actually know from Second Chronicles, King Uzziah is actually, he's actually a good king, like a really good king. Like there's, there's two of them in the Bible. Well, there's maybe three we could, we could point to. Um, almost all the kings are horrifically sinful, lead their people into the worship of other gods. Uh, they do not honor God at all. But Uzziah stands out like Hezekiah and Josiah as being kings who actually seek the Lord in, in, in their life. Uh, he had quite a long, prosperous reign. And so the, things were not too bad for the people. But it was actually, if you, if you kind of follow the story through, it's actually in the place of prosperity that the people wander from God. They get complacent, become comfortable. The king himself, he, he doesn't finish super well. At a point, he's seeking God, but as his power grew, he, he gets proud. He stops seeking the Lord as well. And so when he dies... His death is actually deeply destabilizing for the people. Like another lockdown. And so you've got the king dying, end of an era, right? The hordes coming, God pouring out through Isaiah, pronouncing judgment upon them. Spiritual decline. And it was in this moment, it was in the darkness and the distress and the everything is looking really, really bleak moment where God meets with Isaiah in a way that doesn't probably re- repeat in the Bible again. This is a significant moment. And I just want you to notice, isn't it, doesn't just ring true that it's just like God to do that when everything is at its worst, that God just shows up in a special way? That just seems to happen all the time. And it was in this moment of darkness that, again, notice what Isaiah is doing in that moment of peril and in that moment of, of distress. He is in the temple worshiping God. He's actually pushing into God. He's actually seeking God at that moment. So can I just encourage you, when things get hardest, that's actually when you need to push in the most. You know that. But I just want to encourage you again to push in. If that's you where you are at now, push in in that dark season because God's going to meet you there. That's where he meets with power. We know that God has this habit of taking those darkest areas of our lives, those hardest seasons of our lives, and using them to grow us. And to meet with us and to give us this new kind of assurance that he loves us. Certainly been true in my life. All right. Verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So I want, I want you to see the contrast between, between the two kings, right? You've got King Uzziah, dead. Where's the king of kings? 
well well and truly alive on the throne, ruling, enthroned in majesty. The king of kings, is, is, is he's doing quite well. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The word seraphim literally means flames. These angels are fiery, angelic beings. Not all angels are seraphim, as far as I can tell. And I just want you to notice this, like that these angels are sinless beings. And yet they still can't look at God. You, have you ever noticed that before? God is as high above the seraphim as he is above a caterpillar. Because it's infinite. There's not different quantities of infinity, infinity if you know your maths, right? Infinity is just, it just is what it is. The role of these angelic beings, sinless angelic beings, is to worship God. They're flying around the throne. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the first thing we need to see about this, this God is his holiness. The ho- holiness of God is, can be difficult for us, I think. We kind of have like a twin reaction to it because we're both like, we know it's a good thing, but we also like, it just feels hard. Maybe that's just me. Um, and yet, if you read your Bible, Bible wants you to, this is the first thing the Bible wants you to know about God. The word holy is going to appear 700 times in the Bible. And no other attribute is used anywhere near as frequently of him as holy. We can define holiness as being the sum of his moral character, his moral excellency. It carries the idea of being sacred, set apart, in particular this idea of being separate, different, altogether unique, um, this, this purity of his character. And the fact that it's repeated here three times is super important. There's, there's no other word that gets repeated like this in, in all of Scripture. Um, it's a very special Hebrew thing to do. Um, and like, what, John, John 1 says that God is love, but doesn't say God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or grace, 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 or justice, justice, justice. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. It needs to matter to us. God's holiness is an incredible, precious thing that colors every interaction we have with him. We never interact with an unholy God. At every point, he is holy, holy, holy. And guys, this is actually really good news for us. So it means he's unchanging. His character will stay the same. He's not going to change his mind about us. We can never come close to overemphasizing the holiness of God. He is holy, holy, holy. And we'll, so the next question is obvious, right? What happens when us, right, sinful humans, come face to face with the holy God? I'm glad you asked. Verse, five, verse 4. The foundations of the threshold. This is the temple, right? Big stone building on top of a mountain, a stone mountain. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God came to church, and he was more than we expected, more than we bargained for. We're going to start by saying that coming alive to the real God 
means we have a renewed vision of the holiness of God. A renewed vision of the holiness of God. And, and I suppose, a renewed vision of who we are apart from him. Right? What's Isaiah do? He hits the deck. Woe is me. He's overwhelmed by the knowledge of his sin. The first thing that comes to his mind is, woe is me. I'm, I'm, what's he say exactly? I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell with people of unclean lips. I am unworthy. Have you ever gone through a season of your Christian walk where you kind of just get bored with God? I'm not saying like bored during a sermon because that would happen all the time if you're at my church, hey. Or, or Josh or Matt. Um, I'll, I'll share it around a bit, but, but, like, but bored with your relationship with God, bored in your walk. If you can relate to that at all, it's because you've lost sight of the holiness of God. He is not boring. It's because you've, changed, you've, you've substituted the true holy God with one that is boring. You've lost sight of the awe-filled reverence that comes when we actually come face-to-face with the Holy God. It's also probably because you've lost sight of the seriousness of your sin. The gap between the holiness of God and you doesn't worry you or cause a kind of spike in your conscience. Friends, we should actually be careful when we pray for revival. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. Maybe when I say we should be careful, we should at least know what we're praying for. Praying for a work of God in us. It's not about emotional frothiness, which is a phrase I just stole from Tim Keller. Emotional frothiness. I love that. It's about conviction of our sin and the assurance of our salvation in Christ. You don't get one without the other. You don't get one without the other. And so if, if you're here today and the cry of your heart is, woe is me, because I know my sin. I know the seriousness of my sin. I am lost. This is really good news. Jesus tells a story about coming after the lost, leaving the 99 to go find the one. His heart is for the lost. His heart is for those who know their sin. His grace comes powerfully on those who are poor in spirit. But it won't come on those who are rich in spirit. It won't come on those who refuse to see their need. Martin Luther, he said it really well. He says this. He says, God receives none but those who are forsaken. He restores health to none but those who are sick. He gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead. God has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. I hope you're not above that. Are you above the grace of God? I hope you're not above that. Isaiah hits the deck because he knows who he is and he now knows who God is. He receives grace from the Father. That's what we see next. Verse Verse 6. It's exactly in that moment of woe is me that God just pours out, turns a blessing up to 11, 
and pours out his grace. Here we go, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Terrifying. Fiery angel flying at you. Ah, Having in his hand a burning coal. That's even more insane, isn't it? What you doing with that coal? Uh, Like branding? I suppose that, anyway. That's that's what it would come to my mind at least. And he does. A burning coal. Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Nuclear hot material. With the holiness of God. And he touched my mouth. And said... Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. What? Isn't that amazing? God says, take this from my altar, this holy, holy thing. Put it on his lips because he has unclean lips. But I'm going to cleanse those lips. He is lying on the floor, shaking in terror as an angel brings this coal across and declares that he's clean and forgiven and your guilt, all done, all atoned for. This is one of the coolest pictures of Christ's cross for us in the Old Testament. Except that happens 700 years after this moment, right? Isaiah's sin was cleansed and atoned for, not by that coal, but by the cross of Christ. This coal represented that salvation that was coming 700 years away. And friends, just like Isaiah, while you're shaking in terror on the floor, knowledge of your sin overburdening you, Christ comes and brings grace and brings new life and brings cleansing of your sin. He is the one who does it. Jesus had to suffer and die in your place for your sins so that you might receive grace. Grace is available for us. And I just want you to see this, right? The solution for Isaiah's sin isn't Isaiah. God doesn't say, Isaiah, you are a man of clean lips, unclean lips, so here's, my, here's the rituals you need to now perform to cleanse yourself. Here's your penance where you can go and cleanse yourself. Here's your ritual to perform. No, he offers free and final grace. It's the kind of God we, we worship. But in the same way, we can't do it. We need to acknowledge our full and utter need for his grace before we can receive it. If we feel like we can contribute, we're actually nullifying it. It's one of Paul's points in the epistles. He's just like, if you think you can like help God out a bit, you're actually like destroying grace. You're nullifying grace, he says. Nullifying grace. Terrifying idea. Here's the problem. Hands up if you, if you feel like you love feeling helpless and dependent and in need for someone else's help. It's like there are a few things that are harder to do than lay down our pride and receive help from someone. That's just really hard. Just across the board. Because we have this like this thing called the ego, right? And we just can't control it. And it hurts our pride. But this is what God says. He, doesn't, he really doesn't care about your pride. He cares more about you receiving grace than he does about your pride. And so he says, you are not the answer to your own brokenness. Isn't, like, can we just say that's really good news? Because those of us who have tried that route know that that doesn't work anyway. No, you are not the answer. 
And also, like, just, like, logically, how could you be the answer? You're the reason you're in that mess. No, you don't need another book about, you know, ten ways to get your life together. That might help, but it's not going to fix the problem, right? What you need is a reviving work of God in your life. That's what you need. Desperately, again, another meeting with the true and real God and new life that comes from his hand. This is what we get from the angel. Behold, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I wonder if you've figured out what that actually means for you yet. Have you, have you actually figured out what full and final forgiveness means? I'll tell you what, I meet a lot of people that don't. The knowledge that you are safe in his arms and that you can't outrun him is pretty good news. That our stumbling doesn't somehow stop him from being the God who saves us. That there is always another again of his grace for each one of our sins. His grace is infinite. It just keeps going. So, today, we're up on the mountain. We're here to meet with God. We're here to come alive to the real God. Today's the day for you to receive grace again afresh. Today's the day for you to put down your sin. Acknowledge your sin before the Lord, like Isaiah did. Pray the prayer of Isaiah. Pray, woe is me, for I am lost. God will answer that prayer. Receive the gift of full and final grace. Receive the gift of new life that comes from the hand of God. Receive the assurance that comes from knowing that he's not going to change your mind, his mind about you again, ever. He died for you. He's invested in you. He loves you. Let's finish with verse 8, because this is important. God asks him a question. He asks the empty room a question, I guess. He says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. I've always loved this because the turnaround of Isaiah in that moment is spectacular. He just went from, woe is me, because I've just seen God, and I'm a man, and he is holy, and I can't look at him, to, yep, I'm, I'm in. Like, he's, he's, he's become bold before God. His instant terror that he felt in that moment has been transformed from terror to awe, but like a bold awe. Do you see that? He speaks up in front of God. I, I think I'd be still on the ground kind of shaking, but he's, he's, he's experienced grace, and that grace has actually transformed him, even in that moment. That courage comes from somewhere that we just can't get courage anywhere else. When the gospel really does change your life. I think the guys on the video said it really well earlier, right? When the gospel really does change the life, your life, makes you humble and makes you really bold. If you're not feeling particularly humble or particularly bold, go digging there. There might be one point where God wants to actually unveil some uh, maybe worship of, of fear of man 
worship of men over God. It's where we care more about what people think than, we, than what God thinks. It's an idol in many of us. It's an idol in myself that I know that God keeps chipping away at. But no, courage comes from meeting with the real God, coming alive to the real God, seeing him, savoring him. And it just comes out in the rest of our lives. I'd love to spend more time here, but we're going to finish up. Um, we're going to meet again in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully. We'll do part two, the back end of this um, revival thing. But over the next few weeks, this, I really want you to spend some time praying over this stuff. A couple of prayers you can pray. Oh, that you would rent the heavens and come down. Bring your grace upon our churches. Ashgrove, Kipera, Anogra. Be praying over our churches. Really encourage you to, to, to spend some time praying over that. Um, second thing I'd love you to pray. Pray, God, would, you, would I come alive to you again? Not my idea of who you are, but the true, real God, the hunter. King, the husband, come alive to the real God. So here's what we're going to do now. How are we going for time? 12 verse 6. Um, we're going to spend some time in prayer. That's really important. What I'm going to do is I do want you to spend some time processing what we've already talked about today. And so I'm going to give it, we're going to spend about a good five minutes in silence and personal prayer first. Um, praying over a couple of questions I'll throw up on the screen. Sounds good. Um, spend some time praying over these things in your own heart, your own life. And then what we'll do is we'll, after five minutes or so, I'll pray for us. We'll, we'll split up into into groups of, small, small groups um, to pray together. Before we close out, the, before we have have lunch, does that sound good? If you're here, and the Lord has been speaking to you specifically today, and you just want someone to talk to and pray over, come get me, Matt, or Josh. Um, I don't think we'll have any more worship today. Um, we won't have any more worship today, so we'll just we'll finish in prayer. But if you if you want if you want someone to pray with, um, come grab Josh, Matt, or myself. We'd love to pray with you. All right. So next five minutes. I'm just going to give to the Lord, and then I'll pray, and then we'll split up into small groups. All right. Thanks, guys.